Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the question of what happened to America's liberal majority that dominated the Supreme Court, the House and Senate for decades from the 1960s to the 1980s, to the point where now liberals seem to be betting their success less on a positive vision of America's future, but more on the ability of courts to protect the nation from Trump. But this will not rescue American liberalism because the challenge is so much greater than saving our democracy from Trump if a liberal vision is not reimagined. Joining us is Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He has written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. His latest book just out is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Then we'll examine the greatest threat to our politics, our economy and our culture from big tech in the form of four billionaires, Musk, Thiel, Zuckerberg and Andreessen. Joining us is Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Vim Vendors, Gus Van Sant and many others. He's the founder of Entertainer, the first streaming video on demand platform, and has produced 12 films including Mean Streets, The Last Waltz, Under Fire and To Die For. He's the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book out this week is The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars and Crypto. And joining us now is Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He has written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And his latest book just out is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Samuel Moyne. Thanks for having me. So, of course, it's something of a (laughs) a ritual of making fun of liberals. uh, And, and, uh, you know, there's a a quote attributed to the poet Robert Frost, a liberal is a man who's too broad-minded to take his own side in a quarrel. But there was a period not so long ago when liberals dominated the House and the Senate and uh, the Supreme Court, with you know, real proud liberals like William O. Douglas and Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court, and in, in the U.S. Senate in these red states, you had McGovern in South Dakota, Kerry in Nebraska, Frank Church in Iowa. Ne- never happened today, but in the '60s, the '70s, up to about the '80s, there was you know a powerful kind of political lock on liberalism, at both at the judicial and at the uh, legislative level. And what happened? It sort of almost like disappeared overnight. And by the way, the similar thing happened in Europe, where these long-standing social democratic parties in France and Germany and Italy all just sort of went away too. And of course, the Labour Party in the UK. 
No, it's it's a, a shocking development, although it it took place in slow motion. I mean, I've I've written this book about liberalism as a kind of intellectual tradition uh, in Europe. Of course, you're talking about left parties, labor parties, social democratic parties that sometimes treated the word liberal as equivalent to economic liberal, whereas in the United States, you know, without a, a you know long-standing socialist tradition between Eugene Debs and Bernie Sanders, liberal came to mean the Democratic Party's platform. And uh, you know, if that's what we're going to talk about, I think we have to see that the social democratic parties of Western Europe and the Democratic Party in the United States went neoliberal, uh, and that was. The I think the biggest reason why you've seen a collapse in support for Democrats uh, in um, what are now called red states, like where I'm from in Missouri, uh, the there were Democrats who could win statewide office, uh, uh, including Thomas Eagleton, just to mention one name to add to your list. Uh, and whoever Missouri voted for in the presidential election between Truman and and the second Bush won the election. Nowadays, it's a red state. And my sense is there are a lot of reasons for this, but the biggest one is that the Democrats did reorient and essentially lo lose um, interest in um, being a national party as part of a, a kind of big realignment of the two parties after the 1960s. So is that to say, though, that the realignment was to do largely with money, that the unions used to support the Democrats, and of course the, it's natural for corporations and, and wealthy people to support the Republicans. That's a sort of natural fit. But in the transition that Clinton took, for example, of, of wooing Wall Street, you had a situation where you had one party, the Republicans, who are the natural allies of big money, and then you have another party, the Democrats, who are getting their money from the very same people, but pretending to represent the working people. Is that what happened? I think that's right. I mean, there's money and race, and as a result of some choices that were made in the 1960s, uh, really Lyndon Johnson's choices, uh, the, the Democrats, um, you know, became over the next 50 years more and more a party of the very rich and the very poor, often the racialized poor. And ironically, that left uh, America with two neoliberalized parties, uh, largely donor-driven parties, uh, they had different policies, but there was no longer what the Democrats had been, a, a middle and working class party, although, of course, the middle and working classes had to choose every four years and every election between these two parties, neither of which really acted to advance the interests of these middle and especially working classes. And uh, I think it's outrageous because the Democrats have in effect ceded to the Republicans the opportunity to become a working class party. I think that's going to be very difficult 
for the Republicans, but obviously Donald Trump seized that opportunity by talking about the the neoliberal trade deals as Bernie Sanders had that effectively uh, you know increased class inequality in the United States at, to the detriment of the the wages uh, and you know global position too of the of the American middle and working class and so that's where we are now. Uh, and you know, it remains to be seen, you know, what what movements are going to be made in the future. But when you talk about the Cold War liberals or Cold War intellectuals, in your title of your new book, "Liberalism Against Itself: Cold War Intellectuals in the Making of Our Times," what seemed to have happened, at least the way that I look at the history, was that. You had social democracy emerging out of World War Two. You had the the GI Bill, which was one of the probably the the greatest pieces of legislation in U.S. history in many ways. It created a kind of middle class. They had a transition from a war economy to a peacetime economy. They put a lot of men into colleges who would otherwise have not gotten an education, and it helped build the American middle class. So you had that legacy pretty much on the left, and then the Russians fired off an atomic bomb and then later a hydrogen bomb and the country went through this paranoid period where you had the McCarthy witch hunts, etc. And that the Republicans made a comeback. They were pretty much, you know, after the legacy of FDR, the Democrats controlled our politics, but the Republicans made a comeback in the 1950s based on paranoia and, the base, and they hoisted the canard that if you were progressive and liberal on domestic issues, you were therefore aiding and abetting the foreign Soviet enemy. And that seemed to have shrunk the left in this country enormously. And it led to the fact that the only thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on is to throw more money at the Pentagon because the the, the answer to the Cold War paranoia and, and witch hunt, the McCarthy witch hunts, was... We're just as anti-communist as you guys are, right? And we're going to spend just as much money on defense as you are. In fact, we'll spend more. I'm with you. I mean, I think sometimes in a kind of apologetic mode, it's said that the Democrats, you know, never gave up, you know, welfare dreams. Uh, The GI Bill, after all, was just for whites, and there was a lot of, uh, work to be done, and LBJ did, uh, you know, face uh, poverty and racialized poverty, proposing good society uh, reforms. But I'm with you that it, we we have to look back at World War II and how it ended, when even as the GI Bill has passed, the Democrats fail to. Uh, institutionalized universal health care, and above all, um, really do accept a tweaked version of capitalism because of the continuing influence of uh, American libertarianism now with the Republicans saying that it's the sole alternative to being read. And then, as you say, uh, and as we've seen, you know, if we've gone to the film Oppenheimer, uh, the Republicans troll the Democrats into essentially adopting this Cold War posture. Uh, And that means 
we really had a warfare state more than a welfare state even before LBJ and the politics of the 1960s uh, led to the coming of, of neoliberalism and neoconservatism. So uh, something dr went dreadfully wrong in and through World War II uh, and in the years after. And I, I think you're right that the Cold War um, uh, choices of liberals in the United States made them kind of versions of the libertarian right in economics and laid laid a fertile ground for the the later Reagan revolution, uh, which has really defined the last 50 years before, you know, Trump, I think, you know, more than any other politician challenged that, you know, not in policy, but in rhetoric and has succeeded in changing some argument in the Republican Party, as well as Joe Biden's, you know, policies in office, although it doesn't seem as if voters are convinced that his economics uh, are good enough. Well, the historian H.W. Brands argues, of course, that the Cold War effectively, since you couldn't have a hot war, you had a Cold War. And both sides, in, in effect, the Soviets and U.S. sides, wage war against their own people, taxing them enormously with this massive armaments burden that couldn't be used. <laughs> and it was somewhat surreal. It's a bit like the 1984 premise of, uh, of the right. two countries at permanent war, the purpose of which was to control their own population, and but not to win the war. I, I, there's something to that. Um, I, you know, we've, we've had such great uh, historical literature kind of thinking through this, and I'd also recommend Fritz Bartel's The Triumph of Broken Promises, which came out a couple of years ago and which shows that while that's what you what you said is certainly true in the first decades of the Cold War, there's really a competition between the two states uh, to do right by their populations and to provide them abundance, especially in consumption. And, you know, uh, the kind of iconic moment of that would be the so-called kitchen debate in 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 which uh, Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon kind of were, were met and and compared the kinds of you know kitchens after World War II that uh, you know housewives got to cook in and all the new appliances and but Bartel shows that uh, after the oil shock, really both superpowers then um, in common turned to austerity policies and it's just that. Um, the United States could kind of um, impose pain on their people more successfully than the Soviets who frittered away their legit legitimacy at home and ultimately, you know, uh, lost power. So, the, the, you know, I, w I would want to look back and as in your earlier question, in a sense, see how the Cold War led to, in part, out of fear and 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 you know competition uh, ideologically, to a lot of generosity that was then given up under new circumstances after the 1960s. And of course, Stalin was more afraid of the Marshall Plan than he was 
of America's nuclear monopoly. And then the irony in the end is that the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union coming down and the Soviet Union collapsing had a lot more to do with blue jeans and MTV and rock and roll than nuclear weapons. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the 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 proof of that was the behavior of East Germans in 1989 when they were, you know, let let come uh, freely into West Germany and immediately went to um, you know, department stores. Right. Well, but in terms of going back to the voluntary timidness of Democrats and going back to when they got rolled by the Republicans in the in the 1950s over patriotism and liberalism and progressiveness being equated with aiding and abetting a foreign enemy. There's a quote of yours that you use in here from the Columbia University professor and Cold War liberal Lionel Trilling, we must be aware of the dangers which lie in our most generous wishes. I mean, that is just so deeply tragic that we limit ourselves because we're afraid of, of what? Well, in, in Trilling's case, I think, you know, he he had been a fellow traveler in the 30s and it, it, it was he, he helped redefine liberalism in in view of Soviet promises that he thought were themselves uh, leading people down the primrose path. So, you know, he was informed by psychoanalysis, which he kind of tried to use as the touchstone of the new Cold War liberalism. And his notion was that the trouble with utopianism is that it seduces people into backing the wrong uh, side in the Cold War. And so liberals had to, in a sense, give up their you know, ambition and optimism because it would lead their own citizens to betray uh, you know, the liberal side in the Cold War. It would lead them to be fooled into backing uh, the communists. And so the, the the tragic result, as you say, is that people like Trilling rationalized, in a sense, giving up uh, an ambitious uh, and interventionist and redistributive liberalism because they felt that it would, you know, allow for the survival of liberalism. And if we look now, after all the decades uh, in of of that those kinds of low ambitions, it seems like the reverse liberalism is you know challenged from the right uh and seems fragile to many precisely because it's failed to embrace ambitious uh tasks and give people a kind of optimistic uh future to believe in but at the heart of why this is happening though samuel surely is the legacy of the Cold War military spending, we have an over trillion dollar defense budget. It's, it's officially 886 It's almost a trillion. Yeah, I but think if it's, you, a, it's if, coming up to a trillion. Right, but if you add in the VA, um, totally fair. pensions, uh, the DOE, which is nuclear weapons, and the Coast Guard, which is in transportation, they've yep. sprinkled it around to different government departments to reduce the overall number. So Agreed. it's an enormous amount of, of, of our treasure goes into defense spending and, and nobody seems to want to 
talk about the guns and butter argument, and except for maybe Bernie Sanders and a few, but it's so obvious that if we weren't burdened in this way, we could have solve all of the problems that afflict us in terms of universal health care and child care and, and infrastructure, and we could be a really prosperous, healthy, happy country. I agree. Happy I, agree. Country. I mean, so part of what you're saying is is noting that uh, liberals of that era didn't foresee that by creating a military-industrial complex and putting the weight of liberalism behind it, there, it, it, the, the, this would be self-entrenching and it would create the you know procurement and, and lobbying monster that you know seems to convert democracy and Congress uh, representing the people really into a kind of military spending institution. And then I think more broadly, there's the Cold War fear in which liberals colluded, which I think for a lot of people justifies this aggressive militarist posture uh, in, in the world long after the Cold War is over. Although liberals, I think today are, you know, are part of the creation of a new Cold War enmity with China. So you're right that I think um, there there's an exit from this Cold War syndrome, but liberals have generally, you know, refused even to look for it. And of course, it's going to get worse because the next racket, apart from the military-industrial complex, which after all, Republican uh, Eisenhower warned us about, is the new digital military-industrial complex led by Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, who are getting massive, massive government subsidies as the Pentagon falls in love with Silicon Valley in the way that Bill Clinton fell in love with Silicon Valley and so did Obama. And we're getting seduced by that techno-utopianism and these guys are supposedly libertarians, but they're going to be then snouts are firmly in the government trough. No, I you're you're absolutely right and and i think they're in spite of all the attempts to kind of bring home to americans how our government really works in you know collecting fewer and fewer taxes from rich people and then spending the still massive amounts of money it collects from ordinary people on guns, including guns for a stalemated Ukrainian war, you know, we, we won't make progress. Uh, and I think, you know, the point of shows like this is to at, just spread the word and try harder. I think there are signs of breakthrough uh, under Obama and especially Trump. There was a slightly bigger coalition left and right for reigning in American militarism, but it's still very early days for that project. Well, Samuel Moyne, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, thanks, thanks for having for... me. And again, I've been speaking with Samuel Moyne, who's the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He's written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights, history, and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And his latest book just out is 
liberalism against itself, Cold War intellectuals and the making of our times. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the greatest threat to our politics, our economy and our culture from big tech in the form of four billionaires, Musk, Thiel, Zuckerberg and Andreessen. The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you... For them that must obey authority that they do not respect in any degree Who despise their jobs, their destiny, speak jealously of them that are free Do what they do just to be nothing more than something they invest in While some on principles baptized to strict party platform ties Social clubs in drag disguise Outsiders they can freely criticize Tell nothing except who to idolize and say God bless him Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing Available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org And joining us now, Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab Who's produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Vim Vendors, Gus Van Sant and many others He's the founder of The Entertainer, the first streaming video on demand platform and currently sits and uh, currently sits on the board of the Authors Guild American and the Americana Music Association and has produced 12 films including Mean Streets The Last Waltz Under Fire and To Die For and he's the author of Move Fast and Break Things How Facebook Google and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy and his latest book out this week is The End of Reality How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse Mars and Crypto. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Taplin. Good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the four billionaires, uh, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Andreessen. But if you go back to Ronald Reagan, he got elected with the help of a lot of money from his kitchen cabinet friends, etc. But he railed against big government. And, you know, said big government is the problem, not the answer. But big tech threatens so much more. I mean, Reagan was basically trying to reinvent the economy for his friends, and he did, to some extent, help them out and changed us from a savings society to a credit culture. But big tech threatens us in so many more ways than just political and economic. They also threaten us in terms of our culture, and almost also, you could argue, spiritually as well. So am I correct in identifying this as as a much greater threat? And I presume it's why you wrote this book. Yeah, I mean, let's just start with the the basics. Um, In 1980, when Reagan was elected, the top 1% of wealth holders had about 26, 27% of all wealth in America. Uh, Today, the top 1% of wealth holders have 45% at least. Uh, I haven't seen the latest statistics. So just on a pure wealth creation level, 
no one has ever seen businesses like software to be able to create wealth. Uh, and, and you think about it, you know, a company like Facebook, Meta, uh, it doesn't really make anything. Its users make do all the, the creation of production. It gets the internet for free to, to transport the content to stuff and collects almost all the revenue from the advertising business and maybe dribbles a little bit of it out to the New York Times or a few other prominent content providers, but but very little. And so it's it's a business with a a gross margin near 80%, which is unheard of. If you think about, you know, the Ford Motor Company's margin is probably about 18%. And Walmart is maybe 22%. And even Google has a margin in the high 30s. So these are unusual businesses. Uh, the other thing is that unlike the people who were supporting Reagan in the 80s, uh, these people have a very deep political view of the future. Uh, Musk Thiel, Andreessen, and Zuckerberg are all the biggest supporters of universal basic income. And that's because they believe that the future will be a future in which the robots and the artificial intelligence that they control will put a good part of the middle class and certainly the working class out of work. And the government will have to step in to keep people alive. Uh, and that's where this notion of universal basic income comes from. And people will be basically without work and sitting at home. And uh, that's the future they see. Um, so it's it's very disturbing to me. And, and I think, you know, their basic premise is that they don't want anything to change. They like the world just as it is. Um, chaos, gridlock is a feature, not a bug for them because they don't want to be taxed anymore and they don't want their businesses to be regulated. And as you and I have discussed many times in the past, uh, the internet businesses, and especially the social networks, live under a safe harbor liability shield that is unlike any other business in the world. I mean, Rupert Murdoch had to pay $780 million to solve the lawsuit by a voting machine company against him. And yet there was far more lies and nonsense about that on, on Facebook or on Twitter. And they went scot-free. So, given this threat to humanity, in effect, that's, that's posed by these techno-utopians who are selling this dystopian dream, I mean, you mentioned the safe harbor. That happened under Clinton. And Clinton and Obama were both seduced by Silicon Valley and by techno-utopianism. And I think Eric Schmidt of Google spent more time in the White House than any other single individual in terms of a lobbyist. So is this a problem that our politics have literally not only been seduced, but now 
Musk owning Twitter, which is obviously influential, they're to some extent intimidating our politicians. And to boot, they're getting government contracts, huge government contracts, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, for libertarians. They're, they're certainly living off the government dime. So it seems to me that this is a process of both political and economic and cultural capture. Totally. I mean, you know, these people have said they're they're libertarians in one small government for years and years and years, but actually what they are is crony capitalists. I mean, Elon Musk's business, as was in the paper this morning, he's getting almost 70% of all the uh, subsidies for uh, electric car uh, repowering stations uh, in in America. Uh, needless to say, SpaceX, his rocket company, is completely financed by NASA. Uh, his satellite company is completely financed by governments. And by the way, Tesla gets billions of dollars from every other car maker because they have to make a certain number of electric cars, and if they don't make them, then they buy credits from Elon Musk to pretend that, that their production is within uh, the range of things. So they've completely taken advantage of the government in ways that we've never experienced before. Um, and I would also argue that, you know, Musk's biggest dream is to go to Mars. So to just the first trip of humans to Mars would conservatively, and this is Musk's figures, would cost $10 trillion, $10 trillion. Uh, So who's gonna put up that money? We, the taxpayers. Now, in a normal world, that would never happen because people would say, well, why are we going there? And he has no reason why we're going there other than we should be a multi-planet species and that the earth is collapsing and we have to have a second place to go to when the earth dies. I mean, it's insane. We would have to take so much oxygen to, <laughs> to Mars just, just to keep 10 people alive, never mind the million people he imagines living on Mars in 15 years. So it's... Well, as Elton John said, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids, right? <laughs> exactly. But Musk is not alone in this Mars fantasy. You know, you've got Branson, you've got Bezos. And in fact, in your book, you mention Bezos of course, sent William Shatner up in, in one of his Blue Origin rockets. And when Shatner came down, instead of being all full of praise for for Bezos and uh, this little venture they went on, Shatner said, it was among the strongest feelings of grief I have ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of Earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. Every day we are confronted with the knowledge of further destruction of Earth at our hands, the extinction of animal species of flora and fauna, things that took five billion years to evolve, and suddenly we'll never see them again because of the interference of mankind. It filled me with dread, 
My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. I mean, yeah. thank God at least one voice is out there contradicting this. Yeah, I mean, look, this is basically a bunch of hype artists. You know, Elon Musk has famously said, fake it till you make it. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing that's strange is, is that the media in general, present company accepted, uh, generally just thinks these are bold, powerful businessmen and we should be following. I mean, Walter Isaacson, one of the most famous biographers, is about to publish a biography of Elon Musk. And he he put an excerpt in the Wall Street Journal uh, over the weekend. And you could read the whole thing and assume that you were just dealing with a normal person. Here's a person who threatens to drive uninvited to Mark Zuckerberg's house to physically fight him. Uh, he said, you know, he he actually thinks that, uh, you know, this is this kind of cage match, the kind of stuff that Donald Trump used to do with the wrestling, worldwide wrestling is, is the way to keep attention. Uh, you know, I show in my book that the Tesla's stock never went anywhere uh, in terms of rising for almost eight years. And then Elon Musk got on Twitter and within a year and a half, thanks to a huge number of bots that he bought, he got to about 100 million followers. And then he could hype Tesla stock or hype Dogecoin or hype SpaceX uh, in endlessly. So, I mean, I, I, that's what I mean about the end of reality. I mean, here we are in a situation where a good percentage of the people in America still think that Trump won the election. How is that possible? Well, it's right. because the the networks controlled by Musk and Zuckerberg with much investment from both Andreessen and Thiel are where a large percentage of Americans get their news. And that news is complete nonsense. And look, it's about to get worse because AI will flood these networks with disinformation in the next election in a way unlike anything we've ever seen. You right. have no idea where any of this content is coming from. And deep fakes are even more scary in a way. Right. I mean, <laughs> a company yesterday released a, a, a big a deep fake application where anybody can make a deep fake. <laughs> Wonderful. So your subtitle of your book, The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars and Crypto. Jonathan Tapkin, we talked about Mars and the absurdity of investing trillions to go to Mars and how these people like Musk and Bezos seem to be obsessed with this idea. But the other one, crypto, I never understood from the very beginning how anybody could have fallen for crypto because what's the sense of spending real money on fake money? Well, look, crypto is a, a classic libertarian pyramid scheme. 
people who got in at the beginning, that is Andreessen and Teal uh, and, and uh, Musk did also, uh, got their tokens incredibly cheap at the very start of the thing. And then, I don't know if you remember, but in the late fall of 2021, uh, all of a sudden on every single football game, you began to see ads for all the big crypto exchange, Binance, FX, all of them, crypto.com. They, they started buying the naming rights to stadiums. They hired people like Matt Damon and Larry David and LeBron James and Steph Curry to shill for them. And this really peaked over the, the end of the football season, so up all the way into the Super Bowl. In fact, there were so many crypto ads on the 2022 Super Bowl that they called it the Crypto Bowl. So what happened? So crypto was at that point selling at about 6,000, uh, I mean, Bitcoin was selling at about 60,000 a coin. And these whales, as they were called, that is the big holders, which Professor Scott Calloway has said that about 2% of the accounts owned 90% of the $800 billion supply of Bitcoin. The whales started dumping their coins to the suckers. And by May, Bitcoin was down to $20,000 a coin. So all those people that bought in over the Super Bowl at 60000 a coin had lost almost all their money by May. And of course, the, the people who were the whales had made out like bandits. I mean, it, it's, it's insane. There was a letter to Congress from a bunch of very smart cryptographers that basically said uh, all of the problems, and this is right after the Great Fall, and they said all these problems are the inevitable outcome of a technology that is not built for purpose and will remain forever unsuitable as a foundation for a large-scale economic activity. Total pyramid scheme. Let's now take a brief station break. We'll be back in a moment, continuing the conversation with Jonathan Taplin. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're continuing the conversation with Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Lab, who is the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book out this week is The End of Reality, 
how four billionaires are selling a fantasy future of the metaverse, Mars and crypto. Well, the other scam is happening now. We talked about them, these guys being libertarians, but have their snout in the federal trough and they're scooping up trillions. They're at the cutting edge. These same billionaires, Andreessen, uh, Musk, Thiel, I test to a lesser extent Zuckerberg, they're in on the new digital military-industrial complex, and Musk owns SpaceX outright. He holds the fate of Ukraine in his hands because of Starlink. He's also buddies with Putin, and I think Thiel and company seem to be very sympathetic to Putin. Is there something to that relationship with Putin that suggests that they want a kind of politics in this country that you have in Russia, where you have a corrupt leader like Putin, in the American version it would be Donald Trump, who's a, who's a wannabe Putin at any rate, but essentially you just have a country run by oligarchs, and needless to say, these guys are the oligarchs. What is their affection for Putin all about? Well, let's take two things. It's very clear evidence in the the military, and it's in my book, was when the Ukrainians who were using Starlink as their sole source of communication, when they got started getting close to the Russian border and making some headway, all of a sudden their communications were cut off and they didn't know what was going on. And it turned out that Musk had made a solo independent decision to what is called geofence Starlink. So that if, if anyone crossed a certain, you know, border or anyone crossed a certain line that he had drawn on a map, they would have no communications because he didn't want to piss off Putin. <laughs> so obviously the Ukrainians complained, the Defense Department complained, and Musk didn't really do much about it. He he first thing he did was tell the U.S., that he wanted them to pay him $400 million to continue to supply uh, Starlink to the Ukrainians. Uh, and then they said, well, you can't just do this in the middle of a, a war. You, you, this has got to be negotiated as a contract. So, so that's the first problem. The second problem is uh, a group called Bellingcat, which you have referenced a lot on your program, which were the... The, the people who understood how Putin had poisoned Navalny and the other dissidents in Russia better than anybody, they have suggested that both Thiel and Musk might lend some of their new AI expertise to Putin for the 2024 election to cause total havoc. I mean, we all know Prigozhin working for Putin did a lot of chaos in 2016 with his internet research agency in Moscow to, to you know, create. But that was material that had to be created by real humans sitting in a room, making up posts and posting them on Facebook and Twitter. Now you've got a situation where not only can you put a post, but then you can apply AI and get 100,000 bots to amplify something. And so it seems to be everywhere. Um, and you have no idea how it happened. 
So, I mean, I'm, I'm very worried. I mean, look, Musk and, and Teal have made it very clear they would like to have a change of regime. They, they don't like Biden at all. They don't like the fact that Biden is making a lot of moves in the antitrust field, and they see themselves all in the uh, kind of focus of Lena Khan and the Federal Trade Commission. And so um, they want to get rid of him. So Jonathan Tappan, again, the author of The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars and Crypto. Let's talk about transhumanism and the idea that somehow humans can be fused with machines. Transhumanism, I'll just quote from your book, transhumanism envisions a future in which artificial intelligence and robots ruled by the technocrats will do most of the work and a significant portion of the population will sit at home living a fantasy life in the metaverse, in Zuckerberg's metaverse, subsisting on government-paid crypto universal basic income which will cover their broadband bill and their Metacoin micropayments for all the concerts and clubs that they'll attend virtually. Anyone who thinks that this kind of dystopian fantasy should visit Amazon's research and development facility to see the future of whole warehouses operated by five humans and 5,000 robots. So it's bad enough that you have... People today, you see them in a restaurant, everybody's sitting around a restaurant or even at the dinner table where the nuclear family used to meet. Everybody's looking at the device in the palm of their hand and not looking at each other and interacting. This will take you into that dystopia at warp speed, won't it? I mean, and it's going to just encourage more of the kind of sick stuff that we see with these kids like the shooter down in Jacksonville spent a couple of years in his bedroom, little kinds of sick fantasies, went out and bought an AR-15 assault rifle, painted swastikas on it and killed a bunch of black people. The incels, the same kind of sickness where they live in a virtual world uh, sharing their sick fantasies on online with their fellow incels. Isn't that sick world going to be fed by this? Everybody will have a helmet on their head and they won't be interacting and they'll become less human. Well, that, that's certainly part of it. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen says uh, reality has not been so good to us and we need more fantasy. So, um, but transhumanism goes farther than that, Ian. I mean, so Ian, uh, I mean, Peter Thiel is spending millions to create ways that he can live till at least 160 years or 200 years old. Um, now, some of this is like fairly simple stuff where he goes down to San Diego and gets blood transfused from 18 year old boys uh, once a month. Uh, and he, he has cited that mice, that he has proof that mice given the blood of younger mice live longer. But some of it is very deep in, in terms of kind of nanobots that go inside your body and, and work. Um, 
to eliminate disease whenever they find it. Now, the only people who will be able to afford to live to 200 years old will be millionaires like like Teal, because it'll cost you 20 or 30 million dollars, assuming these technologies can be invented to do that. But there's another part of this transhumanism, which is this notion of the singularity in which, you know, basically Ray Kurzweil, who is the CTO at, at Google, believes that essentially there will come a point within the next 10 years where AI will be smarter than humans and will be the dominant species on Earth. And in that sense, at some point, you might be able to keep yourself alive just by merging your consciousness into an AI. And even if your body went away, you could still keep running your company like Palantir uh, through the AI. Uh, I know this sounds insane, but these people are spending billions to make this a reality. And um, I think on some deep level, um, they're interested in replacing nature with machines. And that to me is the, the ultimate fight that we all have to kind of say, is that what we really want? Um, because, you know, at some deep level, uh, I believe that we have to kind of fight against this. I mean, Kurzweil was asked, did he believe in God? And he said, not yet. So he's assuming that he or, you know, Elon Musk will be a God by 2045. And, and in that sense, you know, this is also for our town, a, a real situation. For instance, why are these strikes going on in Hollywood right now? I don't believe it's the economic issues of how much a writer will get paid for a screenplay. I believe it's the issues around artificial intelligence. Oh, it so, is. I've been in, on the strike and on the picket lines, and most of the placards we hold up are you know, about AI. Well, but just to, just to, just in the last couple of minutes over here, Jonathan, we don't have to live in their future. We don't have to live in the future of Musk, Thiel, Zuckerberg, and Andreessen. And Thiel wants to live for 200 years. He doesn't have any children, obviously. I guess Elon Musk makes up for that. You know, they can also you can also, of course, have designer babies that have you know Einstein's intellect. Uh, LeBron James's athleticism and Brad Pitt's looks, you know. All of these dystopian nightmares are heading at us in, at warp speed. So just in the last minute here, give our audience a sense of how they and everybody else have to step up and just cut the cord. Yeah. Look, we have to ask ourselves whether we want to continue down this road of techno-determinism, and surveillance capitalism, or whether you want to join the resistance movement. And I see that movement every day on the picket lights around the Hollywood studios. I hear that resistance every day with the kind of handmade songs made by our friends T-Bone Burnett or Rhiannon Giddens. I see that resistance in 10,000 signatures on an author's guild letter to the AI barons 
asking to be paid when the AI systems train on their work. So I think you have to say, I'm not going to put the helmet on. I'm not going to, you know, be willing to finance Elon Musk's StarCraft $10 trillion dream. And and I think, you know, there's a lot of nihilism around. And, and I think what we have to do is see that this does not have to be our future. And, you know, the strange thing is, that we're in a place where technology is actually making the possibility that the global warming and many of these issues can be solved. And these people want us to spend all the money in these fantasy worlds. And, and we have to just resist it. Can I just say one thing, Ian, just at the end here? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm going to be with Ian at Diesel Books uh, on Tuesday at 6.30. And, and if you're in the west side of L.A. and want to come visit with us and I'll sign a book for you, I, I, I hope you could come. Well, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be there, as you mentioned. So yes. we've run out of time, but I thank you for joining us here, Jonathan Tablin. My pleasure, Ian. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone Oh